this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We loved the blind quickfire last night, borrowed from the French Top Chef. Oh, yeah, I watched it. Can we just like pick your brain about that? And also, Le Pigeon is, is like over on Burnside. I love that restaurant. And when I went and covered the Blazers a few years ago, I, I ate there a couple times. It's a fantastic place. Gabriel Rucker is amazing. His food's amazing. Le Pigeon is amazing. Canard, his sort of more casual place is great. Le Pigeon was not open during the time in the pandemic that we were there, but Canard was, so we got to eat there. I've known Gabriel Recker for a long time and he is super talented, still under the radar to the rest of the country in a lot of ways. Uh, one of the great cooks of Portland, for sure, really put Portland food on the map. That challenge was complicated. I was at set that day and I'm usually not there during quick fire challenges, but I can't remember the reason that I was there. I must've had to have... Sh- be shooting something else, whatever the reason I happened to be on set that day. And so Brooke and Gabriel came back to our dressing room area after the challenge and just kind of like, Brooke could not believe how hard it was. (laughs) You know, a little cool thing that wasn't fully explained in depth on the show is that there are 30 or so top chef licensed shows around the world, right? I mean, there are so many versions of Top Chef in every country. Our show airs in many countries, 
But in addition, there is a whole separate Top Chef France, Top Chef Turkey, Top Chef Canada, and on and on. Top Chef Israel. Top Chef Israel, basically, it just is everybody's yelling at each other at the judges' table <laughs> and in the kitchen at all times. And that's that's this the show. They never actually judge. It's just people just argue the entire it time. It is a loud show, but yes. I think it's delicious. <laughs> like, of all places, I actually really want to be at judges' table in Top Chef Israel. So there are all these versions, and when we were uh, shooting our finale in Italy uh, two years ago, right before the pandemic, the end of 2019 for All Stars, when we finished the finale and we all flew home, three of our executive producers flew to Paris for a Top Chef producers conference. First time and only time ever. Every showrunner and executive producer from, I think, every version around the world met. It was like the G7, but it was, you know, top of Top Chef. They met in Paris for three days to collaborate and talk about their versions and sort of present their show to each other and get inspired and trade ideas. And I just thought that was so awesome at the time. I remember our showrunner, Janine, flying off to Paris to do that, and I couldn't wait to talk to her when she got home to like hear all the insight from all these other versions. Like there are, you know, there's the Gale of France and the Gale of Israel or the <laughs> Gale of, I can't even remember all the different places, Brazil. So that challenge that you saw on Top Chef last night, the black box challenge was born from that conference. France presented it and was explaining how it is, I believe, a challenge they do every season on Top Chef France because it's so loved and it's so crazy. It's sort of like our restaurant wars, you know, we'll never not do it. Or the mise en place race, they always do that black box challenge. And that's how we learned about it and brought it to Portland and spun it off kind of with our own version. And I got to watch the French one and it is actually like far more serious. <laughs> you know, they're in like their white toques yeah, and it's like, yeah. they're just kind of tasting very serious, kind of muttering to themselves. <laughs> but, you know, the intention is that the plate of food is very complex made by a really one of the best chefs in the country. And it is challenging. Gail, we got to see Dawn shine there. And this is one of my favorite Top Chef things is like blind taste tests where they have to like eat and blindfolded eat a bunch of ingredients and call it. Like Dawn was a star at this. I think she even tasted the, she said it was like a carrot mustard puree. It was not just a carrot puree. I think she like picked up on almost every note. And I love that because Maybe when you're making a dish and because we can't taste the food, I feel like that's another sixth sense that chefs have on this show is just their palate. And this episode, this quick fire exemplified that Dawn, I'm sure the, the others have an amazing palate, but that is such a skill in the, in the top chef room, in the kitchen. It's a skill on a good day that obviously as a chef, you need to hone your whole life. And as a culinary expert, like it is something that is so important to us at all times. But again, for Dawn, it's like not only does she have obviously a really brilliant palate, but under the craziest pressure too. I think that if they were all sitting quietly in a room with more time and didn't have to do all the different steps after they tasted it, they all pro probably would have been able to pay a little more attention and get more without the stress. But she could do all of that even under those circumstances. Yeah, I mean, she's an athlete. She thrives under the pressure. This is a major milestone for this broadcast. We're joined by Top Chef celebrity, notable VIP Gail Simmons. This has been a long time coming. 
Gail, how are you? I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, guys. All right, we have a ton to talk about. Thursday night's episode, we're, we're down to the final five and four. Hold on, episode. can I just squeal for a second? Yeah, Gail, you you're on the show! <laughs> Gail, you're here! Welcome! Yes! I'm trying to play it cool, right? Yeah, no need. It's exciting. Thank you, guys. We have an episode that we definitely want to get into. It was emotional. It's high stakes. It was fascinating. We both got a chance to screen Top Chef Amateurs and have a million questions. It was fantastic. Uh, and then we also kind of want to just talk about the unified theory of Top Chef, just kind of largely, you know, why the show is what it is, what it does so well. I like an agenda. So that's good. You have your agenda for me. This is a three-pronged attack. Let's go into let's go into Thursday night's episode because, I mean, so many of our listeners, this is what they come to on Fridays. Was it as emotional for you as it was for everybody present? I mean, it was at every step of the way. Um, you know, last night I wasn't able to watch in real time. I had already seen the episode and I was, um, putting my kids to bed and a, a good friend of mine texted me saying, how did you keep it together? Yeah. Didn't you see, we were all crying at multiple stages of the episode. I mean, there was not a dry eye in the house, so to speak. It was emotional. I think that on every season at this point in the competition, and Tom's talked about this a lot, the chefs are exhausted. And that is precisely why we gave them the challenge. We gave them one, two, because we couldn't bring their families. You know, traditionally we have actually brought members of the families to us, but this year because of COVID, because of our production bubble, we could not bring anyone in in that way. So this was our way of giving them a little piece of home at a point when we thought we could really give them and they could really use some love and support from home. We know they were missing home. We know that they were all tired and, and emotionally and physically spent from the competition. I mean, this is just, this is always the breaking point. We kind of knew what we were getting into, but we really didn't realize for them how charged the, the challenge would be in this care package. We didn't realize, you know, how how deeply they would connect to the care package challenge. I remember watching and seeing Jamie getting emotional. She's not someone who gets very emotional, period. And when you look at the the fact that she was just trying to keep it in the whole time and she broke, I felt like that made water waterworks for everybody. Yes. It's like when yeah, Jamie's it losing it, then everybody's got to be losing it. We did all lose them. Eliminated and come back. So they also know what it's like to be told to go, even though they're both also winners. And they understand the stakes. They also understood, I think, the feelings, the very mixed emotions that Jamie and Maria were feeling at the end of the episode about wanting to stay, but also feeling like it wasn't quite their time to leave. Neither of them obviously wanted to leave, but they also, you know, were so emotionally spent that they needed to sort of give into that. It was amazing to see Jamie also show us a side of herself in that way, because I, it's not that she's not emotional, Jamie. I think that we all have seen this amazing, quirky hilariousness that I think often covers up and is her sort of defense and coping mechanism for showing us negative emotion. She's such a positive person with her, you know, she's like an onomatopoeia machine. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that that's always often her way of putting up a little, you know, comedian act when she feels other things. Um, so seeing her in such a serious mode, you know, you knew it was real. So just walk through, uh, you know, kind of working backwards. As you mentioned, each contestant gets a care package from home, box of culinary items that the families identify with or just know that the, the chef loves or 
an attempt at humor or whatever, Maria gets her box, and and it was one of those things. And I and I and I believe it was you 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 who noted it. One of the difficult things about those boxes are the items are by definition emotional. They are items from home. They they have been sent by loved ones. And I should tell you, yes, they're items from home. We asked when I say we, I mean the royal we. Our producers reached out to the families and asked them to create a care package of culinary items for them. But we didn't tell them you need to give us something that they can then create a dish wish, dish with because ultimately that would have ruined the challenge. We didn't want them to give them every single ingredient you need for your signature dish that you make at home. We wanted them to just give them a random assortment, like a mystery box of things that they would connect to. And they had to do the digging and figure out how to make it into a dish, right? So the the, the families didn't weren't thinking dish. They were thinking, what are the ingredients that are their favorite things together or that have meaning to them? And they didn't all go together, which is what the challenge was, right? Like that was what made it difficult. And Maria's household, bean sprouts have great meaning. I've always found them tasteless, (laughs) earthy and bitter and and kind of sort of filler. (laughs) Watery. Except Mm -hmm. in bibimbap maybe occasionally. But but other than that, but, but in that household, Bean sprouts, unfortunately for Maria, uh, have have great symbolic and emotional weight. And the issue became with all of these boxes, as with every challenge. And you know, I think this is a lesson that every chef learns on Top Chef, but also just in your growth journey as a chef. You know, the art of editing and knowing when to stop adding, what to add at what time, and why things should not necessarily all go together in a certain way, right? It's kind of understanding and being that that editor and that the craft person who can create something without getting too emotional to it so that you know when to stop. And that becomes really hard when we're literally tugging at your heartstrings, right? We're literally showing you all the things that mean the most to you in this very moment. I mean, it was sort of mean of us in some way. I was going to say, like, like, hey, we know they're emotionally exhausted. We know they're physically exhausted. Why don't we torture them? Yeah, you know, that's what we do. (laughs) By reminding them in the most acute way possible that they are apart from their loved ones. Yep, that's it. It (laughs) makes them cook great food. That's the point. We're in the home stretch. Gail, I imagine you might have had the same reaction I did. I thought Jamie's box was one of the great missed opportunities. I'm thinking halaban me. I'm thinking matzo ball pho. I'm thinking Jewish brisket kumtam. And I, I have to say, like, the idea, I thought for about three minutes there, I was going to get the great fusion of Jewish shtetl and, and Vietnamese cooking. And, Vietnamese. and I was denied. Yes, we all were. Uh, you know, that box was mystifying when we first heard the list. And then we all agreed. I mean, it could have been brilliant. It was one of the harder boxes because it was clearly thrown together with zero sense of how they would ever become something. You know, it was matzo ball soup and brisket and chilies. And, you know, it was really diverse in that way, but there were common threads that I agree they could have been brilliant. And I, I remember noting at the time that there could be actually very, um, very organic synergy here. Mm-hmm. She went there, but she didn't, fully let herself express them or think how her heritage and this place that has meaning for her family, this Jewish jelly that she goes to could really come together in a, in a creative way. Like she missed that moment of creativity that really could have made the best dish of the season. When you're watching 
and you see you know Jamie using a pressure cooker or any contestant using a, a pressure cooker I get I just get cringy inside because that seems to never work out on Top Chef and and I know Top Chef amateurs plays into this a lot and we'll get to that later but Kevin, don't you feel the same way? Is that like when a pressure cooker happens, it almost in- inevitably falls apart and that it, the, the chef ne- doesn't know. I'm, how many times have we heard on the show when the chef says, I've never used a pressure cooker before, but hey. I've never used this implement before, but hey. But right now is the time. You know, it's funny. The pressure cooker has actually had some success in the right hands. There have been people who've known how to use it in the right moment. But again, you would think they would know that from, you know, 15 years of watching the show or, or doing some research and trying it out first. I mean, it's not as if Jamie didn't know coming into the show that they're never going to have three days to braise anything. And it's always a wonder when they are like, I've never used one. Well, you would think when you knew you were going to come on Top Chef, you'd at least like think about <laughs> that because it's you're going to ever, almost ever be your only chance to braise anything um, in a short amount of time. But the pressure cooker, I think, has become the metaphor in the kitchen for the kitchen, you know, for the experience. There's a lot there and it's ready to explode at any time. Dawn is one of my favorite contestants of, um, of, of recent years for many reasons. One is I'm a Southerner. I love that food. Number two is I, I just think she's a force of nature. She's yet to cook a bad dish, um, even when she doesn't get stuff on the plate. Um, three, also, I, I, just as a, you know, someone who chronicles sports, there's going to be tension because she is going to be up against the clock with no discernible, like specific plan until the very last minute. So you get this built-in drama with her. Um, it, 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 she, it, it, and it's just her process kind of lends itself to tension and drama. And uh, anyway, I, I just wanted to kind of get your, your 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 thoughts on Dawn. I mean, whether it was this dish or otherwise, I've we've. I've loved her contested hood this year. And let's just keep in mind here. I traded Dawn from my fantasy team to Kevin, like after episode two, when she didn't get the component on the plate. So I, I just, this is going to be painful to listen to how good she is. I'm sorry, Tom, that was misguided of you. Yes. So the thing about Dawn is she really snuck up on us. Um, and few contestants have had that trajectory. I think, um, you know, she started off to your point, Tom, not doing so well. The first few episodes, uh, the first few challenges, she really didn't get the hang of it because I think her process is so last minute. She has amazing pieces of ideas and it's only in those last five minutes every time when they really come together. And what the finished product is, is often completely outrageously beautiful and imaginative and delicious. Did you get the gravy? I did not get the gravy. I mean, I tasted (sighs) someone else's gravy. That was the thing on, on this particular challenge. She missed the gravy on my plate, on Dale Talde's plate. Um, so I, you know, stuck my fork in Tom's <laughs> plate or whoever plate was beside me. It's usually Tom. And I tasted it, but I couldn't discount that. I mean, I definitely didn't get that whole experience, especially because everyone else was just freaking out about that beautiful red eye gravy. Gail, I mean, can we just talk about the genius that is? Who thought to deglaze a pan with black coffee? Yeah. One of the great culinary inventions of all times. Like, what, what, what can we do to, like, scrape up this this lovely, like, like leftover ham hock? Oh, why don't we just deglaze a pan with black coffee? It's the first but not the last. You know what I mean? That was a piece of, of, of technical inspiration that could have gone either way. And she crushed it. I mean, she did the most amazing thoughtful, smart thing. But again, it was only in that process of like, 
the last five seconds. It wasn't that she had thought out, I think, the whole way through um, that this was going to be the end result. It, she she thrives on spontaneity. And that's amazing when you get to eat her food when it's complete. But it makes for a really stressful situation in the kitchen, especially if she's cooking in a team challenge, uh, because that communication is not there. But also remember, to your point, Kevin, she's an Olympian. She truly thrives on the clock. She understands the clock, I think, in a way that most contestants never understand. And she's confident in her skills because she knows that when that like five minute comes, that's when she kicks into gear and she can sprint for that final moment and make it to the finish line. Um, most chefs need a plan far before that to get their food on the table for us. So it is sort of amazing and exhilarating to watch her cook because you just never, ever know if it's going to happen. Gabe comes in with what Dale thinks is the best dish that he's gotten from Gabe all season. Wins, uh, lights out, lights out is what Dale said with the uh, pork shoulder. So Gabe, I mean, he's on my team here. So I'll just quickly note that uh, he's right there with Shoda and Don, in my opinion, right there going into the final four here. But when you look at Gabe this season, all the moles that he's done and all the really interesting flavors that he's put together, what did you think of this dish that he put together? Gabe stunned us. He he, he has a way with sauces that, you know, which, which you alluded to, Tom, he really, really is a master. Uh, he doesn't always get it right. I mean, he actually, if memory serves, has not won as many challenges, especially quick fires, as you sort of think he has, but he has given us time and again, really beautiful sauce work because his knowledge, his like depth of, of knowledge of Mexican chilies and moles and, um, and sauces, you know, serve him in so many different ways in so many scenarios. And that's always, you know, speaking to the conversation we had about Don you know, that those are things you actually can't do at the last minute, right? Like his sauce work is where he starts. It always starts there, whether it's the braising liquid or the marinade, or it always starts, or the mole, like it starts there. That's the first thing he always does. And whatever comes after the protein he chooses, the vegetables, which are beautiful in off, you know, many cases, it's always for him going to come back to the sauce. And nine times out of 10, he gives us something we've never had before. You know, he's had some clunkers. Restaurant Wars, he had sort of some clunkers as well in his work. He's not perfect. None of them, you know, they have bad days. I have a real thing for sort of beautifully engineered Japanese food. Who doesn't? <laughs> it's my thing. The Google this today is how to compress persimmons. And, yes, and right. get that weird mouthfeel. Because I love working with persimmons, but I never know how to get rid of that. They that weird sandpaper yeah. mouthfeel. Mm -hmm. And now I'm going to either DM Shota or just look it up myself. But I am just such a sucker for his cooking. I'm, I'm going to run out and get um, matsutake mushrooms and, and puree them as well. Yeah. It's funny. I traded, I traded the farm away to Tom. Mm -hmm. in our preseason draft because I mm -hmm. just had a hunch about Shota. I'm like, Tom's beaten me each of the previous three seasons in our fantasy That's right. Team, I and I was yep. tired of losing. Mm, and I'm like, I don't, I'm going to roll the dice. I, I think Shota's my guy. I tossed up advantages in multiple picks. I got Shota and I have not been disappointed. There's a certain precision to that kind of cooking, the way it looks, the way it's engineered, the way it's 
it's thoughtful. I'm not a guy who likes a lot of spice and heat, which is is sort of a trend, just because I have an Eastern European stomach, and I just love the cooking. <laughs> you know, Shota. What's interesting with the about the food that Shota has cooked for us is well, two things. One, in America, and I'm generalizing here. Um, when we think of Japanese cooking, we think of a few things, I think. You know, we think of sushi. Um, maybe we think of tempura um, and tonkatsu. We think of ramen, right? And soba and slurpy, big, fatty flavors like that. But Shota, I think, for the first time on this show, has shown us the real diversity and the real breadth of Japanese cooking. You know, it is a country with traditions in its cuisine, like any other, that goes back thousands of years and that is so, so specific regionally and, you know, within every discipline. Um, and, and so he's shown us a lot of really beautiful, simple Japanese home cooking. He's showed us beautiful um, proteins. He's showed us fit. You know, he's really showed us beautiful vegetable work um, and hot pot and all of these layers to Japanese cooking that I think is obviously informed by his time in the States. But that has been really surprising. And and what I love about his food, and you're exactly right about this, Kevin, is that people love to claim, and it's often true because these days we are all smitten by acid and heat, right? We're always talking about how dishes need acid or, you know, it's very easy when you eat a dish that is really high in acid and really high in chilies that it will distract you from everything else. And because they linger and they make such an impression Chefs often use them as a crutch, I think, both on our show and in everyday life in restaurants these days. You know, that's what people rely on. And we all assume, you know, assume and kind of think makes great food. High acid, high heat. Not everyone's Gigi. Like Gigi put in like some spice into every dish and just was like amazing. You're right. Well, he's a magical unicorn, but that's another story. (laughs) So, and it's true. So I think that why Shota's food is so beautiful is that that almost never applies. And so you really see like the, the technical skill because he's not hiding behind any of those sort of tricks of modern cooking or of, you know, cooking that. Hey listener, it's your favorite butcher turn podcast. Producer may is here to talk to you about butcher box. A not so wise man once said, it's not that hard. Just chop, chop. Who knew that he was talking about pork chops from ButcherBox? It's not that hard. It's easy to get high quality meat and seafood you can trust delivered right to your doorstep. Free shipping always. A variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. You get exactly what you need. Premium ingredients for your meals to feed your family. I know how it is. You go to the grocery store. You're stressed. You got a lot of food to get. And then you got to wait in line at the butcher counter. Maybe your butcher is a tall man with an attitude. I don't know. I've never experienced that, but maybe it happened to you. That's why I love ButcherBox. You've always got meat in the freezer or in the fridge. You're ready to cook at any time, and you're not going to find such high quality at such low prices anywhere else. So sign up for ButcherBox today by going to butcherbox.com dings, D-I-N-G-S, and use code dings at checkout 
to enjoy your choice of bone-in chicken thighs, top sirloins, or salmon in every box for an entire year, plus $20 off. Again, that is butcherbox.com slash dings, and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S. Chop, chop. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Then we'll kind of blind you, and then you, that's all you think about, and you miss the subtlety of technique and... Um, and the range that Shoda is able to show us because there's just really rarely none of that. We kind of forced him to do things with it once in a while, but otherwise he's just really stayed true to the food he does so well. And I think that's really commendable. So Gail, judges table, Shoda is in the top three. Gabe is in the top three. He wins. And also Dawn is, is in the top three, despite missing a component on your plate and others' plate with the gravy. That's got to be a top chef first, by the way, is, is, is a chef missing a component, but still getting in the top three because the dish was so damn good. We talk about that, you know, because there's no black and white in our judging. We literally just need to, every episode, make our decisions based on that specific challenge. You can't write a rule book. But in this case, even without that gravy that I didn't get, you know, the two of us didn't get, her dish was so much better than the other two. There really was a wide gap, which doesn't often happen in the final five. You know, we're nitpicking a little more, but it was quite clear in this challenge that even with that missing component, her dish was so excellent. And Jamie's and Maria's really were flawed in a way that we couldn't overlook. What was so interesting, going back to the previous week when you guys were at the garden, Mm -hmm. is it was fun to kind of see the deliberation do the 12 angry men sort of in the the chambers because, and it it dawned on me that, and also even talking to Blaze earlier this season on this show, is there's a lot less consensus than we might otherwise get the impression when we're watching at home on a given week. I mean, I, I, I'm assuming that is just the obvious statement, but it isn't always so obvious. That's true. Even when there's just five of us at judges table or four of us at judges table, we talk it out, and it's we always come to it and um, you know, a, a decision that is good for everyone. We're all, I mean, we always make sure everybody's comfortable with the final decision. But it often takes a lot of talking. Um, It's not black and white. Everyone comes to the table with subjectivity and perception. And often there's there's also a lot of difference from dish to dish. You know, I can get a piece of protein cooked beautifully and Tom's is overcooked. And that has to be factored in because part of the experience is making it consistent as a chef. If I go to a restaurant for dinner and one day I have a dish cooked perfectly and then the next day I come back for that same dish and it is cooked poorly, I'm not coming back. You know, there needs to be consistency as a chef, as the leader of a kitchen you need to know how to execute every time for every plate. So it's a lot of differentiation between plates. And there's a lot of difference between, you know, our own personal biases. And so, yes, there's always debate. We hack it out. We talk it out. Um, we try to be as fair as we can. This was a specific 
way that we set things up that we've never done before like that. Usually we would just kind of talk it out generally, go back to judge table, and that's where the decision comes into play. We also never have like 12 people deciding all at <laughs> yeah. once in the moment, which actually was really fun. Like we also loved that then we got up from that table and we didn't have to go to judge's table. You know, it was done. It was it was just very clean and neat, even though there was some discussion along the way. The first thing I thought of when Jamie basically wanted to fall on the sword and just say, I'm going home. Maria, you stay here. I immediately thought of Jamie Lynch a few seasons ago who said, I don't I, I know I have immunity, but this isn't fair. I'm gonna put my immunity aside. Did you feel that there was real like Hey, we need to talk to magic well, the producers here. Like, what what do we do? Like, was there a discussion of how to proceed when Jamie was essentially saying, I'm going home? There's always just a moment where we wanna get into that conversation and intervene and start talking about it with them. But we agreed with our producers, we just need to let this play out in the case of Jamie and Maria. It was different than the Jamie Lynch issue several years ago. And we've since talked to Jamie about that. And he absolutely regrets it. You know, he, he does. But it was also clearly, if memory serves, and my memory's foggy, <laughs> in that instance, it was really him who caused the issue. And if he hadn't had immunity, he would have gone home. Now, he still had immunity. That's the game. It was fair. He did not have to leave, right? I'm not going to like really rehash that whole thing because I also don't even remember that much of it. But uh, in this case, you know, we chose who we chose and Jamie was overwhelmed. And I think there was a lot of guilt and, and a deep love and respect for Maria. So she was being impulsive, but we knew like, this is not the game. This is not this moment. And we let them talk it out, but ultimately tried to make her understand that this decision was ours to make and that she needed to stay. She deserved to stay just because emotionally she felt bad is not really what the game's about. I want to move on to Top Chef Amateurs. Sure. On a lighter note. <laughs> As background, I mean, one of the kind of funny recurring dialogues is, could I do this? And should I do this? And should I go out for it? The answer is yes. Yeah, the answer is yes, Kevin. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. Once I started getting into it, A, wow, I don't think I'm there. But B, it was so much fun to live vicariously through, you know, the contestants that we saw. Like, they so clearly, it 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 reminded me just the visceral connection food lovers have to this, to Top Chef and the Top Chef empire in general, right? And just, and, and, and kind of a larger question I have is, before we even get to amateurs is, why does Top Chef work so well? Like we're 18 seasons in. People, it's a it's a cult following. It is it, there are competition shows all over television. There are cooking shows all over television. None of them have the resonance that this particular world that you guys have created have. Thank you. Why? I, I think there's a lot of components. I think there's a confluence of things that make Top Chef what it is. And they were not always intentional. Some of it is the evolution of the show and how we had the ability to adapt to what we realized the audience was looking for. But I think from early on, we put into place three things. One, Top Chef was always about professionals at the highest level, right? You know, the first season, we made adjustments to any disparity in the levels of cooks on the show. That first season, there was a, a larger range of cooks, but still all in some ways professional cooks. As soon as that first season ended, we realized it was the high level, the sous chefs, the really experienced line cooks 
that were the ones that were the most compelling and also were what no one had ever seen before and really craved. So from that moment on, it was always about professional cooks. And that's one way it differentiated and not just kind of line cooks who'd had a year or two experience and wanted to be famous. I mean, these were people whose livelihoods were cooking for the greater part of a decade or two. I mean, you know, and as each season went on, we were able to really hone the talent pool to only be executive sous chefs, chef de cuisine. And now they're, you know, half of them are owners in themselves, which is also side note, why Top Chef Masters sort of doesn't exist anymore. Because as soon as Brian Voltaggio, a top chef was able to be a master, there was just no difference. We'd reached that (laughs) breaking point, right? Where there was no differentiation between a top chef and a master. We realized our top chefs are now the masters. So we need to just focus on the, the true top chef show. Yeah. It's like watching professional athletes, right? Why do we love watching professional sports? Yeah. Professional, especially individual sports, um, really any sport, is because we're watching people who have spent their life becoming the greatest at what they do. And that is incredibly compelling, right? So that's that. The other thing is the way that we use the backdrop of every location. Um, And I think that's really unique to us. And it's the thing I love the most about the show, that we have taken our viewers on a tour of this country, of the world, through the lens of food, and really used every season to do a very deep dive into a different place that has its own culinary identity. And that's been extraordinary for the chefs. It teaches them to cook differently, to think differently. you know, it's an education for them and us and our viewer. And that's, I think, something that really differentiates Top Chef. Um, and the third thing, I think, and Tom and Padma definitely agree with me, we've had lots of discussions about this, is that it's, it's like not about us. It's really about championing them, right? It's not about us being like snarky or bullying them or making it about the drama Um, You know, very early on, we learned to start taking out that behind the scenes stuff at the house or us being really edited to be like the evil one and the sweet one, you know, in terms of judges. It really just became a genuine conversation about food and being champions for the restaurant industry and showing people, um, you know, these these amazing stories of of these chefs. And it's just it's about them. And and I think that that is why people are so invested in the show. I love Top Chef Amateurs. We actually got a screener. We got, we were able to watch an episode of it. And Which episode? We watched Marvin and Farah with Joe Flam and Eric Ajapong next to you at the judges table. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Richard Blaze was with Marvin. And then uh, Melissa King was with Farah. And I got to say, um, this season 18 has kind of looped in Top Chef alumni as part of just like this uh, band-aid, like, hey, we're in a pandemic. We can't have these guest judges come in and out like a like a turnstile into the show anymore. So we're bringing back Top Chef alumni. And Kevin and I are in agreement of this. This on this, this is a fantastic development on the evolution of this show is bringing yeah. back the Richard Blaze, the Dale Taldes, um, bringing back Carrie and uh, Melissa and Brooke. The same thing with Top Chef Amateurs is, I don't, I don't know, it just, it's like having a reunion with your old college buddies. Like when you see Joe Flame walking onto the set or whoever it might be, it's like, it's just so great to think about the Top Chef group that you've created, this, this kind of fraternity and sorority of people who are just in this club. And it's just, I love that about Top Chef Amateurs because you're almost 
you're almost paying an homage to the fandom of the show when you do yeah. a, this is not Top Chef scallop and you bring Fabio from back in season, whatever it was, and then doing a risotto on the show. I just love that you're paying back. You're, you're almost like the third rail of like, this is the fandom. This is why people tune into the show is just how obsessed they are about Top Chef. And you're playing into that on Top Chef Amateur. I love that. All the lore, like the scallop, the risotto, like there's great mythology mm-hmm. that gets built and narratives that get built over time, right? The curses, um, the the crutches, the, the, the hacks that people – and. What's so great is this could have very easily Top Chef Amateur's been, okay, let's just do an amateur competition show. We'll slap the Top Chef licensing on it, but it doesn't really have – no, it incorporated all of that mythology in it. And I mean I can't wait for it to premiere and, uh, and, and again, try to live vicariously through these people. Um, and it was so much fun. They just were so clearly – just having the time of their lives because they were stressed <laughs> out. And it was hard not to kind of, you know, live vicariously through them. I mean, you've said it all. You're absolutely right in a million ways. The show was born out of two things. One, in the pandemic, we saw home cooking just proliferate and grow and people engage, obviously, at home in a way that no one could have like, you know, really understood until it happened, right? We all were cooking three meals a day, begrudgingly or not. Um, and all of a sudden, home the, the sort of culture of home cooking was all we all had. And there were so many extraordinary cooks that could now shine under the circumstances, um, under these very unique and crushing, you know, sad circumstances, this beautiful light out of the pandemic in terms of cooking, right? So that was the first thing that tipped off all of us as a production to, well, our show's always only been about professionals, but this year is the year of the home cook, right? And maybe it's time to welcome them into our kitchen and see what they can do. Um, And also the idea of fandom and that, that so many of these home cooks are so inspired by Top Chef. They know the language, they know the history, they know the lore and the legacies so well that how do we bring them in? And it almost becomes like wish fulfillment. Yes, that's exactly what I thought. Yeah, it was almost like make a wish, Top Chef. Yeah, yeah I felt like Oprah, you know, you get a car and you get a car. Like it just <laughs> felt like that the whole way through. Um, and the joy was mutual, by the way. You know, watching them thrive in the kitchen, watching them be challenged, watching them freak out and then having really truly heartfelt moments with them over food was just as amazing for us for our crew i mean our camera operators and our audio people and our you know our lighting department and our culinary department we would all just watch like glued to the screens and you know in the moments just as excited for them as they were um you know remember that at the moment that they all came, we shot this in like October and November, right after Top Chef finished, we just kept the kitchen up and kept going because all the alumni were still in the bubble with us. And we just wanted to, you know, get this all together as we were all already set up to do. And the people, the contestants who we found who were combinations of amazing cooks who also were super fans of the show had all been in quarantine for nine months or whatever, seven months, eight months at this point, you know, we were all at the breaking point um, 
of, of the pandemic. And we flew them across the country, made them quarantine in a hotel room for over a week alone before they could see another human. I mean, their meals would get dropped off oh, wow. in front of their doors for them. I mean, just like all of us, we all had to do that when we first arrived. But for total strangers who had never knew what they were going, getting into, you know, were just amateur home cooks. They were like accountants and teachers and nurses and, you know, architects all alone to come to spend one day in our kitchen and then fly home. That's a lot to ask of someone, but for them, it was like the best thing that could happen in this year, getting them, giving them this experience at the darkest time in our nation's history. I mean, it sounds dramatic, but that's how it felt. They would walk into the kitchen and we could hug them. You know how good it felt when we all were first, you know, last week when I first hugged my friend, you know, felt pretty great. So they were, you know, blown away by it. And it just became this real, like this energy it was palpable in the kitchen. It's been the mission of this podcast to get Kevin on Top Chef as a contestant or as a guest judge or me. I'd love to be a guest judge or be a part. We went to season Kentucky. We went to Kentucky Lexington for a restaurant wars. Yeah, we ate it Northeast. Oh, right. I was, I wasn't there. That was your pregnancy leave that season. Yeah. I had like, I gave birth like three days into the season. So I was home. Priorities, Gail. Come on. All right. <laughs> we were <laughs> thinking about how we get Kevin on the show and now we have you and you're the host of Top Chef Amateurs, which is premiering after the season 18 finale on July 1. But I got to ask you, Gail, can you grease the wheels a little bit to get Kevin on the show? Because- I'm I'm worried that he watched last night. He said pre-show that he was getting a little stressed out, putting himself in the shoes of the amateurs. I think I'm a year or two away. I got to bone up a little bit. He's two years away from being two years away, and then we'll see. Oh, I want to ask Kevin first, and then I want to hear Gail's critique of this or just her thoughts on this. Kevin, you're on the show. You get to do a draft of Top Chef alumni to be your sous chef. Who is your sous chef on your Top Chef amateur debut? I mean, this is going to be boring because she was. I need a calming influence. And Melissa King, I would take into the most stressful life situations. I just want her kind of, actually, I just kind of want her to be by my side in life. Oh, me it's too. It's not even like a cooking show. Like when I go see my family or if I go to like a, a, a work interview or, or I, I went in every pressurized moment of my life, I would like Melissa King sitting next to me. This is, this is, so it's, it's, it's like the easiest thing. I don't know in terms of her prep schools and actually apparently she doesn't. Uh, cut scallops perfectly, but it doesn't even matter. Like, that is that is the influence I want. I want her like a genie in a bottle. Yeah, no, you're not alone. I want her by my side at all times, and I'm grateful for the time that I get to spend with her. Uh, that's a great choice. I fully support it. Um, you know, here's what we'll do. It's mutual. It's there was mutual benefit here. I loved making this show so much. It felt so out of the realm of what we usually do on Top Chef. Um, I was able to show a different side of myself. It was sort of like looser and easier. Obviously, it's just super positive and, uh, you know, just about showing the best side of these home cooks and giving them a day they'll never forget and having a lot of fun along the way and teaching. I mean, the, the cooking's real. It is a massive, hard kitchen to cook in. And they were given 20 minutes to take a look around, you know, before we threw them in the fire, so to speak. I loved making the show. And my goal is just to make it again, right? Like, I just want to make more, more Top Chef Amateurs because it's also the, the, the format of the show. Every episode is two chefs against each other. And there's an, a winner of every episode. And every, you know, the next episode is totally different. So we can... Make. I mean, there are endless amazing cooks in this country and we could make endless challenges for them. 
So, you know, let's just get his next season going and then we can talk about Kevin's apprenticeship. Yeah, this is, this is my bucket list. All right. <laughs> I ask this of every, because anytime I get anybody with expertise on, I, I want to take advantage of it. Gabe has inspired me this season. I think one of the places I could improve and I, I've gotten pretty good. Again, quor- this, this awful tragedy has been terrible to this country in, in a million different ways. One unintended benefit is, as you said, is like I have now been able to devote the time to home cooking with and have learned lessons that I will take with me the rest of my life. Like I'm a better cook than I was 15 months ago. However, I want to get better at sauces. One or two books and resources that you would recommend that a home chef like me, again, you kind of know my taste. I'm a, I'm a Shota. I'm an Adrian. I like, oh, yeah. you know, I kind of a clean, what's my purchase at my local cookbook store if I really want to sort of, I want to get serious about saucing. I, I, I need to get to the next level. Oh, this is interesting. I like, I wish I was standing in front of my cookbook collection right now. I think the best lesson about sauce is that it really is technique. There are recipes for every sauce out there, but when you really shine as a chef is when you understand the feeling of them and you can replace and improvise understanding how to create balance in a sauce. Um, you know, the work of a saucier in a kitchen is some of the hardest work because it is just a hundred percent about balance in the final dish, in the final moment. Um, and there's so many factors that come into play with it. I would go to the classics. I would go to Jacques Pepin, La Technique. Like I would really, because he explains it in a way, it's about explaining technique so that you can then get in the kitchen and not have to follow a quarter teaspoon mm. of this and a half right, tablespoon right. of that, right? It's about that feeling and understanding the science and the, and the skill. Um, so that's, you know, one place. And then, you know, thinking about modern cookbooks that are really great with sauces. I mean, there's a lot that come to mind. Bringing It Home by Gail Simmons is a pretty good cookbook. It's not bad. It's pretty good. I will say there's some some really simple, great home sauces in my book. Um, not that that was going to necessarily be my choice, but you know, <laughs> to the point of just like learning skills, um, sauces don't have to be we all know this at this point, like, you know, cream and butter and worrying about breaking them and being, you know, simmering, really having a really powerful blender, a lot of fresh herbs and some balance to those herbs, whether it's vinegar, lemon juice, spices, and understanding things that will change the texture, whether it's nuts or yogurt, you know, there's so many ways to just take simple sauces and expand them really easily. And I, I have a few of those ideas in my book for sure, bringing it home. <laughs> this is wonderful. Yeah. And that's the great thing. I live in Los Angeles. I have great herbs. I have great fruit. I have great everything. Oh yeah. The produce is amazing. I might not even be a season two Top Chef Amateurs guy. It might be three or four, but I'm going to get there. But I do, last night watching the episode inspire me and I told Tom like, hey man, I, I'm, a, I'm a year away from being a year away. And then we'll see. <laughs> I love that. Well, then Kevin, maybe I need to do my own apprenticeship because if we're going to do a head-to-head battle with Kevin Arn- featuring Kevin Arnovitz, I mean, what better, com- uh, you know, opponent than than yours truly so maybe if we're two years away i see this happening i see this i see this happening because jamie lynch is here in charlotte maybe i get jamie to uh, mentor me uh for top chef amateurs i think maybe i've got something here it's a little insider baseball there but i like it yes i like that you're calling in the 
the pros. You know, if we can get to season three <laughs> from your lips to God's ears, as my mother would say, and I hope to see you both there. I just think that's what's, what's amazing is hearing you talk about how the amateurs inspired you, but the amateurs were inspired by the original show. And this is kind of this like amazing trickle down effect. The effect that the show has had on people that top chef amateurs in the first place was born out of the way that our chefs have affected a generation of home cooks. And now the amateurs themselves are inspiring others. And I think that that would really hit home for them. That's a really beautiful thing. I think at the risk of being schmaltzy. I like schmaltzy. There's nothing more affirming than someone you love or admire enjoying your cooking. Like there are very few things other than like, I mean, Tom, like when you write something that you're proud of and people read it and love it, it's that feeling. Um, I mean, it's the only other time I ever get that, right, is is sort of, you know, when you read or write or you write something that somebody else just loves, but also when you cook something that someone else loves, there's, it's just, it's kind of intoxicating. Well, I think that's why all of these chefs cook. I mean, I think that's why our chefs are chefs, you know, because yes, it's altruistic in that they want to feed people, but they, it's, it is absolutely feeding their own need for validation in some ways, but also that, that feeling of the connection that it creates. And I think that's why all of our chefs, why all great chefs are great at what they do, because they truly, at the end of the day, want to make people happy and want to provide that experience. Before you go, we've had we've had an amazing time here. I wanted to ask you, are you ready for a parade to go through your home in Brooklyn uh, for the Brooklyn Nets? Because the Nets are oh. running through the NBA playoffs right now. Are you prepared for the parade to go through Brooklyn? Do you, are you aware of how good the Nets are? I am aware of how well they are doing. Barclay Center is a mile from my house. So we will be um, stampeded, and I am here for it. I mean, Brooklyn could use it, and uh, and I'm rooting for them. By the way, they notable among press rooms, which have varying qualities of food. Gail, there are thir- there are 29 arenas in this league, in our league that Tom and I cover. Um, mm-hmm. Some of them have ex- actually Portland always had, I think, some of the better food. Some of oh. them it is. It is. I think it's almost they're trolling sports writers because we've said nice, not nice things. It's so awful. Portland has a beer tap, like they have yeah. a tap uh, uh, at, in the press do. room, yeah. which is just so appreciated. Oh, they, yeah, exactly. Um, but Brooklyn, in there when they opened, I have to tell you, they had black and white cookies. They had a series. I think they scaled it back a little um, with cost constraints. But I have to say that the press room at Barclays Center that first season or two was as good a place to eat. Um, as anywhere in the league. And, um, and, but the black and white cookies were particularly of fascination to a certain cohort of sports writers. <laughs> Remember even when, Bar- when Barkley opened and they were really serious about their food program. So I'm glad to know that it resonated because it would really disappoint Brooklynites to hear that the food wasn't good. I mean, it's, there's no excuse for that anymore. I was really struck by how much Brooke and Kristen were emotional with those letters and just felt like, Everyone had this pent up pandemic fueled, um, not not separation from their families, but just like this whole this like feeling of love and, and humanity and trying to be with your family and friends. And Brooke must have just been so, I don't know, wrecked from having to do that challenge and then going into the letters afterwards. I feel like that was just um, for everyone on that episode going right into the finale. It must have been just so emotional and. 
I, I feel for the the chefs because it's been a running gag on the show that Maria cries at every episode. Every single episode is just like clockwork that Maria is going to sob. Uh, and we love her for that. But on this one, it just seemed like everyone was waterworks and shouts to Brooke for, for volunteering to do that and to just having to sit there. I mean, Kristen was choked up at the judges table talking to Maria, like coaching her, being like, you deserve to be here. Like, stop doubting yourself, all this. And Kristen was getting choked up. Has there been a moment where the judges table gets emotional like that? We've definitely had emotional moments on on the show many times at judges table. But I think this was particularly poignant because what clearly what Maria was saying resonated with Kristen in so many ways on a different level. Uh, it brought her back to her experience um, being eliminated in season 10 before she came back from last year's kitchen. And it brought up her own personal insecurities as a chef and finding her voice and being confident in who she was and really understanding Maria's sense of self-worth. And, and I think that's something that everyone can relate to, but it, it clearly hit a note for Kristen in that moment. I mean, I, I cried more on this season than ever, but I would also say I cried more in the last year and a half than I've ever cried in my life in general. I think all of us, everything is right at the surface. And that's where we all started. Mm -hmm. So there was only one place to go through the season. And we're still, you know, three or four episodes, I think three episodes away from the end. And these last three episodes are really magical in an amazing way. We do some really special things that, for all of us, we'll never forget. Thank you so very much for giving us the time. We're excited about Top Chef Amateurs, which premieres, is it July? July 1st, July 1st, right after the finale. So if you're watching the finale of Top Chef, make sure to just keep watching. It's just going to roll right into Amateurs and then every Thursday through the summer, which is really fun. Which is great because my goal is to have a world where 12 months a year there's some top chef programming that's original and <laughs> we're working on it we hope you'll be back next season we, we would love to make this an annual uh pilgrimage for us our listeners and you well thanks for being such uh kind supporters of the work we do we really are proud of it but it means a lot that you guys have been with us and kept up with us and been so thoughtful about the way you watch the show over the years doesn't go unnoticed. It blows our mind that the contestants, like we've had producers on the show, we've had hosts, chef testants on the show, and they they don't listen to every episode, but they'll be like, oh, we get a real kick out of listening to you guys because you you actually like treat it like it's a sport. Like it's an actual like living, breathing, it's its own sport. Yeah. Again, we're so excited to have you on and thank you so much. And when Kevin comes on and, and hopefully Top Chef Amateur season three, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just keep it in mind. Like let's, let's make that happen. Okay, Gail? Yeah. We're going to work on that. When I blow the lid off Crudo. That's right. <laughs> in the Top Chef kitchen. I would love nothing more. I would love nothing more to be in that kitchen when you walk through the doors, Kevin. For Tom Avistro, for Gail Simmons, who was kind enough to join us, this is Kevin Arnovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. 
That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.